Hey there, welcome back to this week's episode of the Seatown Podcast, where Seattle business owners, entrepreneurs, and community leaders are invited on to share their stories with us. I'm your host, Christian Harris. This week's episode of the Seatown Podcast is brought to you by Seatown Real Estate. Their mission to make a difference extends beyond just their unique and unconventional approach with their clients and their agents. They partner with the community to give back a percentage of the proceeds from each home sale to a local nonprofit of their client's choice. Visit seatown.com, S-E-A-town.com, and experience the difference with Seatown Real Estate today. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Seatown Podcast. This is episode 63. Today I'm joined by Amy King, the co-owner of Square Peg Development, which is a Seattle-based uh, collection of companies uh, focused on residential and commercial construction. Now, when we, we met, that was interesting you know, to me because you know, I've got a background in carpentry and construction. Um, but then you know, you start, we started talking about um, kind of you know, philanthropic work and being involved in the community. And you mentioned a more recent uh, nonprofit organization that you guys started mm-hmm. called Weld Seattle. Um, now, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about their mission and how that ties into uh, maybe kind of how it was, it was birthed out of your, your construction company. Sure, yeah. Um, so we started Weld Seattle about... Um gosh, informally about two years ago. And the way Weld started was mostly in reference to our own employee base. So across all of our companies, we are a second chance employer. We hire individuals who are transitioning out of incarceration or the criminal justice system, um, out of addiction recovery and out of homelessness. Sometimes they're engaged in a combination of those areas. Um, And as we started working with those people and providing job opportunities and training, we learned that there was, of course, a multitude of other needs that they had in order to succeed uh, as they were reintegrating into society. Uh, one of those primarily being housing. And so um, the way Weld started was very organic. We had a developer who was asking us to help remove squatters from his property, um, as many developers face in this sure. city. Um, and we had two individuals on our teams, on our construction teams that were homeless, um, not with a current place to live. They were living out of their cars and we were trying to help them get into a shelter or some other living scenario. So I went to the developer and said, hey, I have this crazy idea. You have a vacant house. We have two homeless individuals on our team. What if they lived in your house? That would stop the squatters from coming. Could we just give it a shot? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how Weld started. Okay. So the first Weld house happened that way, very organically. Uh, we did a couple more that way. And then I went to the city and said, hey, I'm doing this thing. Um, I want to make sure I'm not violating any laws or rules or anything. We think it's a good idea. We know there's a ton of vacant developer properties. Um, available around the city for this same type of housing and obviously we have a housing crisis in our city so could we look at this on a broader scale Um, and they were great they came to the table they interacted with us they brought their legal teams and their resources to the table as did we Um, and we were able to get um, engaged in uh, vacant property legislation that was passed last year. So that legislation allows for developers to utilize their properties in this way okay. for transitional housing, and they get a number of incentives for it. We, in turn, get housing opportunities for our people. So um, the houses are run um, basically as clean and sober living houses. Okay. So we um, assess and intake all the individuals coming into our program. They get housing, connection to resources, pathways to employment, and they live in a supportive transitional community while they're getting back on their feet. And then as we are able, we help them transition into permanent housing. Okay, that's that's pretty awesome. I mean, that's... Yeah, thank you. That sounds like a, a big mission. It is, it <laughs> um, is. Did, when you started Square Peg, you know, in, mm-hmm. uh, was 2004? 14, mm-hmm. yeah. um, was that 
part of the focus, or you just kind of realized there's a need and it yeah. kind of developed out of that? Yeah, no, the focus for Square Peg was just construction initially. Okay. Um, we wanted to build housing in the city, um, and my husband's been a general contractor here in this city for 15 years, so he was already doing that. Um, we started hiring people coming from the criminal justice um, system mostly out of necessity. I mean, there just isn't enough workforce out there. Everyone knows that. Um, there's a real shortage of laborers and workers, skilled workers mm -hmm. in the construction trades. And so we had a really hard time finding employees. Um, we stumbled across our first six gentlemen that worked for us totally, again, organically by accident. Um, but as we got to know them as our employees, we realized um, that there was definitely two obvious problems here. Mm -hmm. One is the lack of employment and opportunity for people coming out of incarceration, and the other is a, a labor shortage. And we thought, gee, if we smash these two problems together, we might actually solve them both, mm -hmm. um, which was the same thing with the housing. So, um, you know, it was first it was just employment, but of course we wanted to our, our employees to be successful and stay with us. We wanted to support them um, as people as well. And so right. hearing their other needs was kind of part of our strategy and being a good supportive employer and housing was the number one thing that came up for them. A lot of them can't rent apartments or um, get into housing that norm other people would get into sure. um, because of their criminal background. Right. Um, and so we wanted to create some opportunities there for them that don't traditionally exist. Mm -hmm. So, Yeah, I'd, I'd imagine that's going to be going to be challenging mm -hmm. with, I mean, I, I haven't really thought much about it until we, we kind of had our conversation mm -hmm. about you know, how, you know, they... You know, you commit crime, you go to jail or prison, whatever, mm -hmm. you serve your time, but you're still penalized basically yeah. for the rest of your life. Yeah. Uh, you know, like, I mean, what's the first thing on the apartment rental? Are you a felon? Mm -hmm. You know? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, what, what What are some, maybe some, some inaccurate maybe stereotypes that you've found? I yeah. mean, uh, you know, obviously being able to provide t for their other needs is going to make them better employers because their life's going to be more stable. Right. Um, you know, as well as just being able to help another human being. Yep. What What are some of those uh, maybe, maybe misinformation or stereotypes that you found to not be accurate that are kind of keeping keeping your your people down? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot. I mean, okay. depending on what they what they're they've been charged with or what their conviction is, mm -hmm. there's a you know a whole slew of things that come along with those convictions. And of course, it's public record. I mean, you can Google sure. somebody and see their criminal background. But when you're trying to get an apartment or get a job, you have to check a box. Now, there's a lot of great policies that have come down the pipe over the years that mm -hmm. kind of remove that barrier initially. But um, it's not a perfect system, of course. There's sure. still human bias involved in the process, both from an employer perspective and a landlord perspective of if you have multiple people applying for the same apartment or job and you sure. are looking at them or Googling them or researching them, which you have a right to do, yep. and you've got a person with a criminal background and one that doesn't, I mean, by human nature, we're all going to default to the person that doesn't, sure. right? I, I used to be that person myself. Mm -hmm. um, and, and what we've learned is, you know, it's really the, the conviction doesn't really carry that much um, bearing on the person themselves. And I think, I mean, I wouldn't have known that until I started interacting with people. And it was yeah. really that personal interaction that removed that human bias that's sort of innately there. Mm -hmm. um, but it's definitely something that, you know, a lot of them face just, oh, I see you have a felony. Well, what was the felony for? Most people don't even take the time sure. to understand the story, right? And um, for I would say 100% of the people, or at least 99.9% .9 of the people that we have met through the work that we do, mm -hmm. and we've learned their story, all of them have some sort of childhood trauma or major, major issue in their past mm -hmm. that has impacted them in some way that led them to where they are. And, and 
a vast majority of the time, things that were not their fault and that they had no control over. And a lot of times, most of our people actually struggle with addiction or have an addiction-based mm-hmm. um, uh, conviction. So things like a, a drug-related offense, but then there was something else related to it, like, well, gee, I was high and I you know, assaulted someone, so now I have this felony conviction of assault. Sure. Well, we all know that drugs, you know, like not an excuse, but drugs change the chemical balance and nature of our brain. And so they're they're making choices and doing things in a state that's not themselves, right? Yeah, not and then when they get clean, they're a different person, sure. right? But the other piece to that is a lot of people are using substances to numb trauma, but yeah. they're not dealing with that trauma. And so what we found was if we created an opportunity for a job which fills your time and meets your immediate need of, you know, feeding yourself and mm-hmm. providing for your for, for life and for survival, um, as well as uh, housing, which is necessary for stability, and a supportive community, that the community is actually really the missing piece that I think most people don't think of. They just assume, you know, well, everybody has somebody, and so they just need to tap into that community. Well, a lot of these people don't have a community, right. and, or, and or their community is an unhealthy community. It's those people are still using or engaged in criminal activity, right. and they're trying to stay away from it. So providing them a healthy, supportive community to engage in that recovery effort in, whether it be recovery from substance abuse or recovery from trauma, mm-hmm. we're all recovering from something. So we wanted to give them that safe space. And what we found was that combination of things, but primarily the community, was what really made a difference and was really a catalyst for change for most of the people. That They said, I was able to separate myself from that old life, start a new life with a community that I knew cared about me and was supportive of me, and peers, people that were going through what I was going through and could relate to me. And I was able to then kind of walk that road to recovery and start again. And and it starts with a job, but it turns into much more than that, if that makes sense. And nationally, the uh, federal statistic is 77% of people return to prison within the first five years. So we started looking into, well, why is that, right? There isn't a lot of empirical data around this issue because it's hard to track people who are coming out of the criminal justice system over time. Um, But just in conversations informally, what we learned was, you know, most people are reoffending, committing a crime or returning to um, their substance abuse out of necessity. They they can't get a job. They can't get a house. They don't have any supportive services. They're seeking out community, which is natural human behavior. So we said, okay, how do we combat that? Well, we create a different community Mm -hmm. and opportunity to do the things they need to do to survive that the rest of us would do right I need a job I need a place to live they're no different than me they're humans too they need those things too so we just wanted to create space and opportunity for those things and in turn our program has been very successful our recidivism rate is less than three percent so an extreme opposite of the national average yeah as you were starting to um, kind of see this need and try to figure out you know why these things are did you do quite a bit of uh, talking with other you know nonprofits that you know have you know, the kind of the similar mission. I mean, the mm-hmm. you know what you're saying definitely echoes. You know, uh, when I had you know Marty Hartman on here from Mary's Place, mm-hmm. and you know, kind of that, uh, or you know Jeff from Union Gospel Mission. Mm-hmm. You know, their thing is like it's about community. Yes. You know, if if they're not finding a new healthier community, they're going to return to their old dysfunctional That's right. community. That's right. Yeah, yeah, we've definitely found that too. And mm-hmm. we did. We talked to a lot of nonprofit service providers in the area. We talked to, um, you know, criminal justice reform specialists. But the 
best source of information we had was our own people who were walking that walk or had walked that walk. Sure. And what, what we have found, and I think some of the other programs have found this as well, is that peer relationship is so important. You know, it's one thing for me to come in. I haven't been to, to prison myself. Sure. Um, you know, I've been through recovery before of a different kind because, again, we're all in recovery, but I'm not a peer to them. So, mm-hmm. you know, they, they respect me and they appreciate the opportunity that we provide and they're very grateful and kind and they're wonderful workers. But it, when it comes to the really deep stuff that needs to be done to navigate where they've been and where they're going, it has nothing to do with us. And, and I say that to people all the time when they ask me, like, what's the magic thing that makes your program so wonderful? And I always say it's them. They are the magic and they are the solution to their own problem. And I, I believe that fully. They can walk alongside each other in a way that those of us who haven't walked that walk can't. But there's not a lot of opportunity for them to do that with that work with each other in a healthy, structured environment. So that's what we wanted was to create that healthy, structured environment for them to do that good work together with our help and guidance as needed. But we try not to butt into it. We try to say, listen, I mean, they see things in each other and they have a level of accountability with each other that we, I couldn't even begin to create um, just based on the pure beauty of that peer relationship and the respect that's mm-hmm. involved there, right? Um, and a lot of people return to prison as well because that's their family. They, they spend so much time in prison and that's, that's their community. Those are their people. Sure. So we're trying to create in the same way a healthy family community for them to experience what that should look like, what it can look like, and a healthy community for them to thrive in. And that's, that's our goal at the end of the day. Sure. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense I and mean, it's consistent with what I've heard, you know, mm-hmm. specifically with homelessness, you know, like, yep. especially if you don't, you know, deal with the mental health or the addiction issues, you know, like, mm-hmm. even if you give them a place to live within days or weeks, they're back on the street because yep. that's where their friends are. That's where that's their right. community is. That's where they're comfortable with, you know. Yep. Yeah, that's very normal. And it, I mean, yeah, you see it in the homelessness here as well. And that's, um, you know, we have a shelter company as well that, that makes shelters. And that was one of the reasons we created a community model with our shelters as well is really the community is the key, I, we believe, the mm-hmm. source to recovery and to growth and to movement out of a scenario. I mean, you need that connection point to people. And a lot of the people that we work with or that come to work for us, you know, they no longer have a family or they have a family that's unhealthy or they have a family that has had to put up some firm boundaries to protect themselves, which is very normal and appropriate. And they have to kind of earn their their way back into that family unit because they've done a lot of damage there. Um, But someone has to walk alongside them while they do that work, right? right? And so we want to be that. But at the same time, also provide for their actual practical needs, which is where the employment piece comes in. You know, we Mm want to provide a place for them to make money as well so that they can eat and live and thrive and, you know. Personal dignity. Absolutely. And at the end of the day, I mean, from an economic standpoint, too, as a business owner, that helps me, too. You know, Mm -hmm. right? If I take my feel-good philanthropic hat off and put my business owner hat on, you know, what do I need? I need consumers, right? We all need that. And, and we need taxpayers and we need productive citizens. And if we ignore the fact that they're not contributing in that way, then we're just going to, they continue to be, be a drain on the system. Sure. And we're not doing anything to move them out of that situation, right? And yep. so rather than just complaining about it, we wanted to actually provide an opportunity to help them become that productive citizen that they want to be. And then they become taxpayers and consumers and they're contributing to the overall solution rather than taking from the overall solution, which most of them don't want to do. They want to contribute to society. They just sure. don't get that chance. Right. So That's great. I mean, you, really, I mean, the big picture is, you know, you're giving them tools to put in their toolbox that they right. didn't otherwise have before. I mean, that's right. Um, you know, because I mean, I mean, I'm 
you know, as as my journey has has gone on, you know, I, I've I've definitely seen some big shifts in my attitude towards you know, homelessness or criminality or whatever, you know, uh, you know in the sense of, you know, it, for me, I'm just like, well, why don't they just X Y Z? I'm like, well. It's not that's easy for me to say when I grew up in a healthy, yeah. relatively stable family. Right. Uh, you know, like I've got certain tools and I think a certain way. Well, that's not everyone's experience. Right. Know? Like, how, how do you, you know, relate to people that have different experiences because you can't, right. you know, think like they think. Right. You know? Yeah. And we have to remind ourselves all the time. I mean, we we do a lot of soft skill training, too, mm-hmm. and just basic life skills. Yeah. Just, just by proxy. I mean, it's not a formal program by any stretch. We do have a formal mentorship program, but that involves those things. But... You know, what we found is a lot of times we they'll come and say, like, you know, gee, Amy, can you help me with a budget? And I'm like, what do you mean? You never built a budget? And to me, that's crazy, right? Sure. Yeah. Because my father is an engineer, and he ra- he budgeted everything, yeah. and he taught me how to do that. Well, it's, it's hard because I haven't had that experience to understand, like, how do you not know how to make a budget sure, or open a bank account yeah. or balance a checkbook? Well, then when you hear their story of where they've come from and you go, oh, your parents didn't do that either. You don't just know that stuff, right? right. That's not inherent human knowledge. You're taught it or you experience it or you witness someone else doing it right. and then you know. And so what did they do? They witnessed, not all of them, but a lot of them witnessed parents using drugs and parents making bad choices. So they, they mimicked the behavior that they saw, sure. right? I mean, it's a basic psychological textbook response right um, and we see it every day but even then it's still shocking sometimes to go really you don't know how to do no fill in the blank or you know sure. but that's the more we realize we see it the more we realize oh this is not common sense there really isn't there is some common sense but generally speaking there's not such a thing as common sense we learn from watching other people sure. and if we have a bad example then we're not going to know how to do that so we try to set that example and say okay let's come in and let's talk about this or let's set up classes for people to learn basic things that arguably they should have learned from their parents or they should have learned in high school or they but they never got that chance right because right? they were their life was different then right yeah I mean as, as humans you know we mm-hmm. accept the reality presented to us right you know and that we, we normalize that right so. right um, but I mean it sounds like you know between the overarching you know business square peg and the nonprofit uh, you know uh, Weld Seattle I mean and any one of these things would be a full-time job I mean how do you how do you balance it all? I mean, what's your yeah. kind of day-to-day look like? You know, Good question. Uh, every day is different. Very, very different. Um, we do have a lot of balls in the air. We're juggling all the time. We have an amazing staff that are really committed to our mission. Many of them are people that come from criminal justice involvement, addiction, and homelessness. So again, you know, we don't believe that your background determine, should determine your future. Sure. And so um, you know, we have people that are all the way up in executive leadership who you know, have served a number of years in prison or done a number of years in prison for bad choices in the past. So, you know, we have a great staff. They help us manage all the things we have going on and they're committed to our mission, which is to provide jobs and opportunities to people. So that shared culture is built into everything that we do. Because of that, um, we're able to step away where we need to and move our, our commitments around where we need to and trust that things are still moving forward with each arm. But our goal was to diversify and provide as much opportunity across the board as we could. So as the right people come along and the resources are available to us, we just continue to create more opportunities with the leadership in place to oversee it and make sure that the culture is being honored, that you know, based all the general stuff is being followed as it should, legally sure. speaking, and whatnot. So, okay. um, we do have a pretty large staff, and that helps us to do all these things. Okay, that's, so that's awesome. Yeah. Um, whether on the business side or the nonprofit side, what would you say has been the most, uh, the biggest challenge in, uh, so far? Gosh, there's so many. Um, it's, it's the whole thing's been a challenge, but yeah. I think you know we didn't set out to do this. Um, it kind of happened 
to us and we're grateful that it did. Um, so it's been a challenge to learn. You know, we're, we're building a company while we're also learning about a whole humanitarian crisis and trying to understand it from a real grassroots level. Yeah. Um, so that's that's been a challenge, but a good one. I think it's allowed us to really, you know, intimately connect with our people and understand them better to learn it as we go rather than, you know, learning it before and trying to jump into it. It's been a, a um, trial by fire process. <laughs> um, so that's been a challenge. Of course, there's always the challenge of, um, you know, people's perception of us and what we do. Um, generally speaking, that hasn't been a negative thing. It's been a very positive thing. Okay. But we have the odd naysayer who's like, why in the world would you do this? And, you know, we live in a very uh, progressive city. So generally speaking, people here are pretty in favor of what we do. Sure. Um, but we do get some people who say they don't want to do business with us. Uh, we're very honest about our mission. Yeah. Um, and we think that's the right thing to do. Um, that does on occasion, you know, cut us out from being able to participate in certain things, but sure. but those are customers we probably don't want anyway, so that's okay. okay. Um, but we actually, now that the word is really getting out about what we do, um, we actually have more business a lot of times than we can handle people who say, gee, I love what you do and I want to support you. Will you remodel my kitchen? Okay. Well, we, we'd love to, but that's really not our, our wheelhouse. We can. We can do remodels and homeowner work. Um, sure. We're set up for that. But generally speaking, we're a high production um, builder, and, and that's kind of our sweet spot. So, okay. so we like, tend to... Like new construction? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We mostly do new construction, um, and we, do, we can do full remodels and things mm -hmm. like that. But generally speaking, we don't work for homeowners. Traditionally, initially when we started the company, we didn't because we assumed they wouldn't want us in their home because yeah. our people can't pass sure. background checks, right. and we're honest about that yeah. um, but what we found was a lot of people trusted us enough to know that we wouldn't bring people on our team that they couldn't trust because sure. um, we do have a vetting process and so um, you know again over time a lot of our friends family members you know even people who hear about us mm -hmm. through media or other things they'll say you know gee I really want you to come do this thing and we're like well sorry we don't have time sure. so yeah obviously we're busy building houses and trying to add to the housing supply here in the city as much as possible sure. um, and in 2019 we are st switching where um, our strategic focus is around affordable housing and increasing okay. the affordable supply here in the city mm -hmm. which obviously we know is a big problem right. so we're going to try to focus all of our resources towards that um, in 2019 so like micro housing or like government contracts not necessarily for... no it's mostly that like um, 60 to 80 percent AMI workforce housing that's what we're focusing on and we have some private capital partners that we're partnering with to do that okay. um, the, we have talked with um, some people at the city level generally speaking we're probably not going to take government money and, and do the low-income housing that mm -hmm. there's a lot of people in that market that really excel at it and that's their sweet spot and okay. there's really no point in us competing in that market necessarily at this point okay. so our goal is to provide housing across the spectrum so we created a whole housing spectrum of kind of what we believe the human condition you know there's various types of housing and different people need different things at different times mm -hmm. well we want to be able to provide housing across that spectrum so we do that in a number of ways we have our shelter company we have transitional housing through weld and then square peg builds affordable and market price uh, products so really we're touching the whole spectrum with the exception of that low income area okay. we're willing to build that certainly we can sure. it's a matter there's again so many people already doing that that sure. it doesn't really make sense for us to hit that spot but if someone came to us if the city came to us or someone else and said gee we really want you guys to build this product and here's all the resources to do it we could do that that'd sure. be fine and it allow us to create more jobs for more people okay. um, but 
by by strategy, our goal is to kind of fill the gaps. And right now, there isn't really a lot of people building in that 60 to 80% AMI. Mm -hmm. There's a number of reasons for that that we've identified and done some research on. Um, one thing that makes us fit well in that area is that we're vertically integrated as a construction company. So that allows us to control cost and schedule pretty okay. well. So let's say that uh, my listeners didn't know what AMI is. Oh, okay. Yep. But what, yeah. what, what is that? So adjusted median income, okay. AMI. Um, so that's the way that we determine where housing prices fall, right? So um, I believe, if I understand it right, I'm still learning about all this. Okay. Um, AMI is determined at the federal level and then local jurisdictions have the right to adjust it to some extent. Um, what extent, I don't know. I'm still learning about that. But so that, so that number would be like what locally certain like government programs might be based off of it, you know, or affordable housing or whatever. Right. Okay. Yeah. And they, they look at it and say, okay, based on this area, the median income is this much. Mm -hmm. And traditionally speaking, people shouldn't spend more than 30% of their income on housing. That's sure. kind of the rule, right? Of course we know. Here, but, yeah. We yeah. know in Seattle, most people are paying more than that. Um, but that's kind of the general rule nationally. And yeah. so the goal is, you know, there's people that live at that, you know, 50 to 80% AMI are usually your workforce, right? They're your, your police officers, your firefighters, your teachers, the people who make the community run, sure. right? And are really the heart of, of a community. And right now they're being pushed out of Seattle. We all know that, right? Because mm -hmm. um, rents are rising and housing is too expensive. Um, of course, we have a shortage of low-income housing as well, but I, I, it's my understanding that what's happening is a lot of that those workforce people, there isn't that middle ground, and so they're going into the low-income, which is pushing people into the low-income out onto the streets or into um, crisis scenarios. Now, I know that's not always true, right? It's not a perfect, sure. kind of a high-level assumption that we're all making, um, but I think it's, it's both things, right? We know we have a housing shortage, so we have to fill that gap. Now, to be clear, I don't believe that housing supply will solve the homeless crisis because homeless crisis sure, is about the people, it, right. right? It's about people. It's not a housing supply sure, issue. It's not just a resource issue. Right. Like you could supply houses all day and to someone who's you know struggling with a mental health issue or addicted or dealing with trauma, you put them in a house by themselves and something bad's going to happen. It's not going to go well. They sure. need that community, right? That's the yeah. source. And we've already talked about that. So I believe it's more than that. But what we want to do, what we're trying to do is create affordable housing with services built in. So it's kind of like supported housing, but not quite that, like you would think of traditional supported housing, right? It, to anyone from the outside, it looks like a normal apartment building mm -hmm. and it's high quality and it's green build because that's what we do. You know, it's got all the things that you would get in a, in a market rate apartment, okay. but also embedded in it is some education space and maybe a daycare center and um, you know, opportunities for counseling services and AA meetings or NA meetings, things okay. that people need at their place where they live so that they're getting those services more readily and easily. Okay. Um, and so we're trying to build those opportunities or create those opportunities throughout the city. Okay. And that's kind of our goal moving forward. Okay. But, I, I got a couple questions for you. Sure. Um, so with your focus being on affordable housing in, in 2019, kind of filling that gap, you know, for Seattle, um, one, how... How are you guys able to build it uh, and still, you know, make a profit? Mm -hmm. uh, and and two, like I think a lot of people think when they think affordable housing, they think like Section Eight, but oh, there's but there's, there's more a difference. than that. So so what's maybe you could explain the the different yeah. tiers, if you will, of yeah. non-market rate. Sure. Housing. So my understanding is that there's there's low-income housing, and then there's affordable housing, and then there's market rate housing, right? So. Um, market rate is your like what you see all around you now and that's what we build now right we, sure, we build for developers demand, yeah they give us the plans we build them and they sell for way more money than they're probably worth because dirt's so expensive here mm -hmm. um, 
that again that middle ground is more like a standard construction product that would sell for a standard price now where it gets sticky is dirt here land is very expensive right. because we're economically booming which is a good thing mm-hmm. uh, if we want to continue to boom we have to continue to supply housing and continue to you know bring industry and all that kind of stuff so we need to increase density that's one thing um, that really needs to be addressed and i believe the city is trying to address that yeah, but zoning for higher density yep. right right so there's got there's got to be more of that there's already been a, a lot of movement in that direction that's positive and i'm thrilled about that there's got to be more obviously to meet the supply uh, requirement but also um, it, it, the biggest thing is that affordability right and there is there is low income there's not enough of that that needs to be increased as well Meaning and section eight yeah section eight or or sub, yeah government subsidized supplemental stuff yeah. or even you know opportunities for you know um, how supported housing with services like what we want to do but but more intense where people are living with assistance for mental health issues and addiction that's really severe and things like that that needs to be increased as well um excuse me but definitely you know that affordable middle it's kind of that's everyone we talk to is saying that's what's missing it's just not out there so how are we doing it um we haven't successfully done it yet we're trying to pilot a project where we can get the, the land for an affordable price. Now that's hard to find in this city. So there's a couple ways to do that. There's surplus properties um, that the government owns. Um, they have a number of ways that they dole those out. We're not taking any of those right now, but we might try to get some of them. Um, there's also opportunities with um, other, you know, people in the community, um, like churches, for example, who have said, you know, we're not necessarily using this space anymore for church services or purposes, but we still want to engage in the community. Um, you know, I have a heart for seeing those communities continue to be engaged in the community in, in a real practical way. So, okay, you want to help your community still. Maybe, um, you know, you help us get this land and we work together and you maintain ownership of the land or some sort of equity so that you still have some skin in the game as well. But we're providing practical things that the community needs, like yeah. housing and services, right? Um, and we would bring in the services and build the housing um, and then with our private capital partners that we're um, uh, acquiring right now we're trying to, to partner with um, there is profit but it's a different kind of profit right so you know there's you pencil when you pencil it out the reason it pencils out again is because we're vertically integrated and I'd be happy to go into details about why that works differently than than most traditional construction companies but now when you say vertically integrated what do you mean like you control from breaking ground to selling or right no? yeah there are some things that we don't do in-house but generally speaking you know we utilize our workforce that we're training our non-traditional workforce to be able to perform across most lines of construction. So right. what happens traditionally is you have a you have a developer, you have a general contractor, you have subcontractors, and then you have suppliers, vendors, right. and laborers, right? And so with, with each level of construction, you get a markup because that entity sure. needs to make their profit. It makes sense, it's very normal, it's yep. business practice. Industry standard is 20%. So by the time you get to the top, you've paid a 60% markup. Um, no, it's not always true, but generally speaking, you've got a markup to sub, markup to GC, and then markup to developer. Well, we try to serve as all of those things in one, except for we don't supply our own materials, right? Mm -hmm. We supply the labor, but we don't supply the materials. So we can't control that cost, but we can control the labor cost. Um, And we can, and and all of our people make living wages, they get full benefits. I mean, we're not cutting anybody anywhere. The difference is in that markup percentage right so we're not marking things up multiple times you're just getting one mark right and when you think about these big projects these big commercial projects that are really high dollar total amounts Mm -hmm. that markup 
becomes a lot of money, right? Um, and so if you can cut out 40% of it and cut it down to tw- from 60 to 20, that's a big cost savings, yeah. right? And for our capital partners that are interested in us, the benefit to them is, is social impact, right? So they're gonna get some return on their profit, probably not as much as if they were going with a market rate product, right? Sure, but, but they're getting the social impact, the I mean, right? Yeah. And they're, they're providing job opportunities. They're also making money, which is just, you know, it's icing on the cake. Sure. You're providing something in your community and you're making money on it. Not a lot, yeah. but you're making something. And on average, most of our projects that we've penciled so far are anywhere from 4 to 7% return, which mm-hmm. is pretty good for an investor, especially when it's a social impact investment. Sure. So it just depends on the property, though. They're all very right. different. So. so you guys don't deal with rentals, so you're selling those, but you're able to sell them for less uh, I mean, how do you... Yeah, we don't do rentals right now. Um, that's something we'd like to do. We'd like to be able to get properties and serve as a landlord because then we could control who gets to rent them and we sure. would rent to people with a criminal background and mm-hmm. bad credit and all that. Um, we're not there yet, but we'd like to be. That's a that's a matter of partnering with people who have the okay. capital to help us get there, right? That's... Sure. If we were sitting on a pile of money, we'd do that yeah. <laughs> for sure. So, so when you're... Um, I mean, hopefully this is interesting to our listeners. I mean, being real estate and construction, this is mm-hmm. fascinating to me. So, okay. uh, but uh, so how do you how do you control? I guess the the buyers at the end of the day. I mean, how do you keep because you're you're building affordable housing, right? Mm-hmm. What if they're like, oh, I really like this, and someone who has way more money could go buy something else is you know coming in trying to buy these from kind of the working class blue collar people they're yeah. designed for. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, we haven't quite figured out the exact process for sellable units yet, for sale units. Um, our goal, to, cl- to be clear, is to build affordable rental units. Now, will we own the rental aspect? Maybe, maybe not. That's okay. kind of up in the air, and that's up to the capital partner who brings in the capital with us, um, whether whether we control the landlord opportunity, right, or they do. The goal yeah, would, be. So, so so would be. So it is so rental. A, Those okay. would be rental. So it's a buy and hold strategy, not a sale. It is. Property. Now, I have a big, I mean, one thing that matters to me as a, as a developer and a builder and someone who cares politically about where the city is going, we don't have enough homeownership opportunities in this city that are affordable. So sure. just providing rental units is not going to be enough. There has to be an opportunity for people, and this comes from you know my personal passion about our population, they have to at some point be able to become homeowners in order to accrue generational wealth that then breaks that sure. poverty cycle, right? right? And that's Build a huge equity, piece. Invest in the community. Right. Yeah. And a lot of people in our programs and in our in our employment don't get that opportunity either because they can't get I mean they can't even get started. Sure. So to get them to a place where they can own property, that's a, that's necessary, right? They need that. And a lot of people in our city are marginalized from those opportunities historically and, and we want to create those opportunities. So we would like to build sellable units. Gotcha. Right now, the way that the zoning is going with MHA in the city, there isn't a lot of opportunity for for sale units and homeownership. It's okay. mostly towards rental. Um, so we have to do some of that in order for it to be profitable for the sure. investors. We'd like to do sellable as well, so we're working on that. Um, there's also some condo reform that's going through that we're sort of contributing some that's information okay. to. I would love that. Years, yeah, so. it's been gridlocked yeah. for a long time. I would love for that to move forward because now you have homeownership opportunity that traditionally hasn't really existed in our city for quite some time so you know I don't know that that's gonna happen it'd be great if it did I mean I think that would make a big difference in our city because obviously density mixed with home ownership at the SFR single-family residence level it doesn't really match up right so you're gonna have to create kind of those non-customary home ownership opportunities while building density at the same time you could take care of the apartment rental 
space, but it still doesn't make housing any more affordable. You right, know? Yeah. right. So we want to do both, sure. um, but there's politically we're a little bit stuck on the homeownership piece right now. So the stuff that we are building, though, we are we do have a couple residential projects that we're building next year, mm-hmm. um, or excuse me, this year. I keep forgetting we're in January now. Yeah. We're building this year, um, and those we intend to sell at an affordable price, regardless of the, you know, there might be some loss of profit, but we intend to. And then we would like to come up with a process that allows for people that we work with to become homeowners who traditionally wouldn't be allowed to. So we're learning right now. We're trying to learn from groups like Homestead and other kind of land trust groups that are doing this kind of work that are trying to find traditional homeownership opportunities for a non-traditional population. And how can we engage in that market either personally or help them with what they're already doing? I mean, I'm a big believer in don't recreate the wheel. If somebody's already doing something and they're sure. doing it well, yeah. then just align with them. Sure. And Join them or whatever. Yeah. 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 So we're looking for a lot of community partners right now to kind of help us navigate this space with the end goal being providing as many housing, employment, and homeownership, you know, wealth generation mm-hmm. opportunities as we can for people coming out of the criminal justice system and out of addiction recovery and homelessness. Okay. Awesome. Well, I mean, I love your mission. If there's Thank anything you. I can do, uh, Thank obviously, you. you know, don't, don't hesitate to ask. Um, that's awesome. So, I mean, as we as we wrap up our, our interview here, um, is there kind of one piece of parting guidance or words of wisdom that, that you could leave with us? Gosh, I guess the biggest thing for me, like from the heart of our mission is just, you know, give people a chance to try to understand their story, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that was my story. I didn't, this was something that I was completely unfamiliar with. And I mean, you know, we have some addiction in my family back a long time ago, but I was so sheltered from this kind of stuff growing up. Um, and now opening my eyes to a whole population of people, and it's a large group, right, of yeah. people who have had trauma, who have struggled with addiction, who have mental health issues, I mean, you know, experiencing homelessness for whatever reason, and it's really easy. I used to be the person who would be like, gee, just get a job, gee, just, right. you know, right? And it seems so simple from our perspective to say, well, just this, just that, but when you hear the stories, you know, it, it totally broke down that bias for me. And so if you have an opportunity to go and learn from someone who has actually walked in those shoes, I would highly recommend you do that. I mean, hearing the stories of our people has completely changed my life. And if you're interested at at the weldseattle.org website, we have now some um, video footage. It's weldseattle.org backslash fresh start. And you can see some video footage of some of our members kind of telling just very briefly their story of how people generally see them or saw them before and how they see themselves now and how the community sees them now. And it's it's very moving. Um, we It's been a, a real blessing to be able to capture those stories and yep. share them with the community. So That's awesome. Yeah. Um, I mean, I definitely encourage the listeners, you know, if this is something that's intriguing to them, you know, like it, it I, I would recommend, you know, volunteering for, yes. you know, a day or a couple hours mm-hmm. at, you know, an organization that does this. And, yep. you know, when you start humanizing the people mm-hmm. that are struggling, I mean, that's where... The compassion comes through, where the biases right. break down, stereotypes yep. break down. So, yeah. Um, so, I mean, other than WeldCL.org, I mean, is that the the best way to uh, get a hold of you if they have more questions or want yeah. to partner with you guys? Yeah, that's a great way. SquarePeg has a website as well. If people are interested in learning more about our, um, we're going to be posting in the next month um, a profile for this strategic initiative to shift to affordable housing and some more information about how and why we do it. Mm-hmm. Um, that should be up, I hope, within a month or two. So keep your eyes on the website. We'll, okay. we'll definitely be sending some stuff out about that. Uh, the website there is squarepegseattle.com. Okay. Um, so check that out. And that shows kind of our 
capabilities as a construction company as well, which is good. Um, and then we also have our shelter company, which is Pallet Shelter, and it's just palletshelter.com. Okay. You can learn more about um, homelessness and uh, disaster response there. We have a lot of cool information there about um, people engaged in recovery from all kinds of disasters. Um, okay. So. Excellent. Well, thank yeah. you very much for your time today, Amy. Yeah, uh, thank it's you. Been a fascinating conversation. Look yeah. forward to hearing more as far as uh, how this year turns out. And, yeah. And updates. So. Me too. Thanks. All right. Thank you. <laughs> that wraps up this week's episode. Make sure to check out our guest website, pay them a visit, and help spread the word about what they are doing. If you have any questions, know someone who should be a guest on here or has a great story worth sharing, email me at christianharris at ctown.com. That's S-E-A-town.com. I would also love it if you would go to iTunes and give us a review and a nice five-star rating. We work hard to bring on great guests and provide exceptional content, and getting a review from you is one way to help the podcast rank well on iTunes so others can find and enjoy the show. You can also find out more about me, how my real estate brokerage is breaking the mold and making a difference in our Seattle communities, and other projects I'm working on by visiting ctown.com, S-E-A-town.com. Thanks for listening. The music for our podcast is courtesy of The Fascination Movement. You can find their albums in the iTunes store. You can also listen to more episodes and find all our show notes on our website at seatownpodcast.com. This has been a Seatown Media Production.